I want to take your uh, and turn your minds and hearts to the book of James. Let's go back there. We come to really a very wonderful, wonderful truth in the Word of God this morning. One, no doubt, that possibly you've read many times over the years. And I hope to be able to show you how that fits in the Word of God. Let me read for you as you open to James chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18, at least reading, and then I will teach from 17 and 18. But it says in 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, we find ourselves within that second component of the book of James. I think we categorized it through a series of tests. And the first one is in 1, 2 through 12. We said that faith is tested in trials. And then the second major theme we were looking at is that our faith is tested in temptation. And we really want to see that together, for we said that the word for temptation and the word for trial is really the same root word in the Greek language. And what became and can become a trial in our life, if responded to, can quickly turn into a temptation towards sin. There's no doubt that as we saw that trials are to bless us. No wonder James said in 1, 2, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet these various trials. You do so because in verse 4, they're perfecting us and they're working the life of Christ in us. And when you respond appropriately in trial, verse 12, is blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Trials are a blessing. Trials come to mold the image of Jesus Christ into our life. However, when those trials uh, go south, if you will, if we want to say it that way, and they turn into a temptation, uh, here James wants to make it very clear that God is not the source of a temptation towards sin. And so as we come to the second feature on faith being tested in temptation, we've been studying two vital truths that reveal both the source of man's temptation and then in the process correct any erroneous views about God. Now as we look at that second feature, we're looking at the source of temptation and we're answering the question, where does temptation come from? And do you remember that we said that it doesn't come from God? He states that rejection in verse 13. Look there again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
In other words, when you are tempted towards evil, here he wants to make it very clear that no one say, let no one even think the thought, either directly or indirectly, that you are being tempted by God. The reason given there in verse 13 is for God cannot be tempted with evil. And we discussed God's holy character, that he himself is not temptable, if you will. He is untemptable, that God in his character and his holiness is incapable of even being tempted by the evil one. And as such, look at the end of verse 13, it says there, and he himself tempts no one. In other words, if he can't be tempted, then how could he ever conceive in his own mind of ever tempting another? And then thirdly, remember under that first source of temptation, the reality clarified is there in verse 14, that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Uh, The NASB says, by your own lust. And so here is the real culprit. The source of temptation is not God. The source of your temptation, verse 14 here, is your own desire, is your own lust. And at least in this framework, Satan's not mentioned, though we recognize him in chapter 4. The source of your temptation is your own lust. And we spent some time a couple weeks ago on that. And we noted there that that lust always follows a certain path. It begins with a desire. And then secondly, it leads to the deception. You're lured and carried away. Then it leads to disobedience. Thirdly, it conceives and it gives birth to sin. And then we noted its deformity, that it grows up on its own, and then it brings forth, fifthly, death, either spiritual death or physical death or even eternal death, that lust is so deceiving. And no wonder, James said, now look at verse 16, do not be, what, deceived, he says, my beloved brothers. Don't ever be deceived that your temptation has been wrought by God, that if you fail that temptation, you can blame God. Now, James pins the sin on our own desire, our own heart. And remember, Jesus said, for from within, out comes the evil thoughts and fornications and sensualities. It comes from the inside. And we noted a couple weeks ago, the problem is not the tempter on the outside. The problem is the traitor on the inside. And somebody has appropriately said, we've met the enemy, and the enemy is us. And so it's our own lust and our own desire. Now, now what James does here, as we come into the text in 17 and 18, because I want to be able to teach so that you could read the Scripture here, that in radical contrast to lust and deception that originates in our own hearts, God in, the, in, in James' writing here, only and always gives us good and perfect gifts. In other words, look at the text now, again at 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so I take you from the source of, 
of temptation to secondly here, the strength of God's character. The strength of God's character. And rather than just seeing this as a new thought, it is not a new thought. Read this as one letter. In fact, read all of chapter 1 together. He's still on the same theme. He's still hammering on the same truth. He's still in the subject of trials. He's still in the subject of temptation. He wants to say it's not God, it's not, you know, God is not the source of your sin. No, he's here depicted and displayed in the strength of his character as good. Now, as we approach this text, we wonder, how does this fit? Well, again, as I mentioned, James is correcting a wrong view of God or his character in the midst of trials. In other words, God does not send you into uh, the pit of despair in the depth of your trials. He sends trials to strengthen your faith. But you may be, here seems to be the rub, you may be tempted to think, and you might even as we come into worship and Maybe you're unaware that either directly or indirectly, you may be a believer and you may think, hey, God just handed me a wrong trial. He handed me a trial that I could not handle, which you and I would know that that's not true because if we're reasoning, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tried, but what, you know, what you're able. And with every temptation, he'll provide you a way of what? Escape that you may be able to endure. But sometimes we just think, hey, he, he gave me something. He sent something my way. And I just responded wrong. And you know, if God would have just taken a little bit better care of my boss, or if he could have just picked out a different spouse for me, or if this guy didn't come up in my company, or God gave me a child that I could not handle, or he had somebody rip me off of my bonus at work, or hail came and did this to my crop, and it on and on it goes. And at some times, in some places, in the flow of the text, we not only want to blame God for the sin that comes in our own heart, but listen, at times we even misuse and abuse God's character in the midst of a trial. I'm thinking about people who feel they have a spouse who is either detached emotionally or even physically, or again, a job that just doesn't pan out, or a child who won't obey, or a womb that cannot conceive, or a debt that will not go away, or a child memory that cannot be erased. And here's the question for you. Is, and I'm asking, is he still good? Is God good? And what James is going to declare here is that he is only good. That bound up in his character is his goodness. And so he's writing this to a people who were suffering persecution because of their faith in Christ. And this persecution, no doubt, was causing some to be disappointed in 
and angry with God. You say, angry with God? Oh, yeah. You say, well, where do you get that, Scott? It's, the, it's next week. You've got to come back. But look at James 1.19. It's one of the most abused verses in the New Testament. Know this, my beloved brothers, but let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? Anger. You think, what's that talking? What's that talking? Well, that's just like people say, that's just good, um, good uh, counsel for people in a relationship. It has nothing to do with people in a relationship. In fact, don't read it any different than what we're preaching on. What James is going to say, you've got to come back next week, is you need to be quick to hear. Hear what? Hear God's word, slow to speak. Speak to who? Speak against God and slow to anger. So James is just, he's reasoning with us, if you will, okay? And so here, some were disappointed in and possibly angry with God and thinking this, and maybe you think this. And I've been in ministry for 25 years. I know people think this. A good God would not allow such things to happen to his people. And doubting God's goodness... Grace Church is as old as the human race because masquerading in the book of Genesis as a serpent, Satan came to Eve in the garden, and you know it. He said, has God, what? Said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And what he was doing, was he not? Fair? He was casting doubt from the very beginning on the goodness of God. And Satan comes up to Eve and says, Is it really true that God does not allow you to eat of all the trees of the garden? And the implication there was that if God were good, He would have allowed Adam and Eve to eat of all the trees without so much as a single exception. In fact, Satan has never let up on questioning the goodness of God. Sickness comes, a loved one dies, friends fail you. And conflict comes, and Satan comes along and says, if God were really good you really wouldn't be going through this. You wouldn't have cancer. You wouldn't have sickness. You wouldn't have had a job that turned sour. You wouldn't have made an investment that went the wrong way real quick. But listen, Satan also works the other side of the equation. He not only uses the presence of difficulty, he also uses the absence of blessing. I mean, if God were really good, you would have this thing or that. that. And listen, any time you or I doubt the goodness of God, you are deceived. Because that's what the Bible says. You go back to 116. Do not be what? Deceived. 
Kent Hughes said this, and let this frame our message. Kent Hughes said, quote, that it is impossible to walk with God if we question His goodness. This is true, isn't it? And, and you, you believe that? I think I, so, yes. It's a, it is impossible to walk with God if we question His goodness. And for those who are tempted to doubt God's goodness, either directly or indirectly, James makes two stunning statements of God's good gifts to us, okay? He provides two affirmations of God's gifts that declare His goodness to us in the midst of trials, He want to look first, do we, at his stable character, and then secondly, at his sovereign creation. First, his stable character. I think we've said enough now that we'll understand what the text is saying. Look at verse 17 regarding his stable character. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Stop there just for a second. It's interesting how James unpacks this. He didn't want to just say, I guess he he could have said just one of them, every good gift, or I guess he could have said every perfect gift, but he says two of them, two phrases there, and, and they're different words, which is interesting, that express the nature of God's marvelous giving. The first phrase there in verse 17, he says, every good gift. And it's a word that denotes an action. It's a word that denotes the act of giving, or literally every gift that is given. It's the act of giving. Now, you'll note there in verse 17, he calls it not just a gift, but he calls it a good gift. And obviously, he's in the flow of the context here, whereas temptation towards sin produces evil, and that sin comes out of your heart and my heart. In contrast that to the character of God, he not only gives gifts that come from above, but James says here that they're good gifts. In other words, they're all that a gift should be. And so his nature has never created anything sinful or evil. God is perfect, and all that he does is perfect. He's absolutely good. But then he uses a second phrase. Look at it. Every good gift, and then he says every perfect gift. And here that phrase is the ideal of a gift that is appropriately suited to the person. And it calls attention both to the motive and the purpose of the giver. In other words, everything with God as its source, is good. And it comes from above. Again, in contrast, lust proceeds from within. Good gifts, on the other hand, come from God. And so here James says, don't be deceived that God tempts anyone to sin. Now you'll note where they come from. Look at verse 17. They come from above, it says, coming down from the Father of lights. So, well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it calls God the Father of lights, and obviously that's a reference to Genesis 1, 
14 through 19, where God is the creator of the lights, okay? He's the father of lights. And here, the lights are the brilliant sun, the the reflective moon. They're the twinkling stars. He created all of them. You know that in Genesis 1, 14 through 18. He is the designer of all the lights. In fact, in Genesis 1, 4, it says that God saw that the light was what? Good in 1.4. And after he finished that creation in 1.31, he saw that everything that he made, and behold, it was very, what? Good. All that he made was good. And because he is, watch this analogy here, the father of lights, I liken it to a metaphor, that there can be no, what's the opposite of light? Darkness. He is the father of lights. Within his character, there can be no darkness that would originate with him. 1 John 1, 5. God is light, and in him there is no, what? Darkness, okay? Now note with God that unlike the creation of lights, look what the text says. It says there, with whom, the father of lights, there is no variation... Or shadow due to what? Change. So what's the thought line here? Well, it means then as the sun, you know this, and as the moon, and as the stars move in our atmosphere, there are shadows that are cast as the earth rotates. We would use that phrase that the moon waxes and wanes. The sun rises and it what? It sets. But watch this. Not so with God. With God, in His character, there is no variation. There is no shadow that is caused and due to change. One writer put it this way. He said, we earthlings with our feet planted here on the earth, are subjected to constantly changing light. The sun rises and our shadows fall along to the west. It stands high at noon, brightening all. And as it sets, our shadows are to the east until they fade to nothingness. Day and night, light perpetually changes. Light is reflected and refracted differently, moment by moment. But it is not so with the goodness of God. God does not change like shifting shadows. And this writer said, God's goodness is always at high noon. He's making a, he wants you to understand his character. Now, we're talking and unpacking some incredible theology here. Because when we speak on his character here that has no variation or shadow due to change, we're talking about the attribute of God's immutability. And it goes even to Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. And so watch this. The lights have seasons. They have eclipses. They have shadows. But God's nature, Grace Church, is absolutely unchanging. He is, for the sake of a term, immutable. Okay? Andrew Wilson, in his book, Incomparable, 
said this, and why don't you try this experiment? He said, try sitting completely still. You are not allowed to move anything except your eyes. Ready? He says, almost everything about you is changing right now. Even as you sit completely still, your body is changing as, as every second you, pro- you produce 25 million cells. And your brain processes 100 million new pieces of information. Your location is changing at a rate of 66,000 miles per hour, along with the rest of this large lump of rock we call Earth. This rock itself is changing all the time with the Earth's crust moving continuously, continents changing shape, and Mount Everest growing five centimeters every year. The sun, he said, probably the largest and most steady object you know anything about is changing more dramatically. It is now 50 million tons lighter than it was when you started reading this paragraph. Listen, everything is changing except who? God. He is, in the theologian's mind, in our mind, he's unchangeable. We would use the word immutable. Now that word, when we say immutable, comes from the Latin word mutare. And mutare means to change. We get words mutation from it. We even get the word mutant from it. But don't think teenage you know, mutant turtles. Don't think that. Um, but a mutant is a creature who has un- undergone, if you will, an abnormal change in appearance. But listen, God is not a creature. He is the creator and He is immutable, and He lives forever without mutation, without alteration, without variation, and without fluctuation. That's God. An old music teacher was once asked, what's the good news today? Just kind of as he passed by. And the old music teacher, without saying a word, walked across the room, picked up a tuning fork, And he struck it. And as the note sounded, he said, that's an A. And it is an A today. And it was an A 5,000 years ago. And it will be an A 10,000 years from now. The soprano, he said, upstairs sings off key. The tenor across the hall is out of tune. And he struck the note again and said, that is an A, my friend. And that's the good news today. Well, listen, for us... The good news today is that from all eternity, it is this, that God is infinitely good and He is unchangeably good. He is eternal. He is immutable. He is unchanging. And watch this. The God who orders the changes in the seasons in His creation does not change Himself. He is always and only perfectly good. One theologian just said it, and I was tempted to take this out for the sake of time, but I left it in because I'm thinking, Lord, maybe somebody just needs to hear this. 
One theologian said, and, and, and I don't want to say maybe some of you, I think some of you just struggle with this. Now, now listen, I'm, I'm your pastor and I'm new here and you've not all shared the, your whole life story, but I'm just telling you from my years of ministry, I'm telling you people can just get off track. They're just in track on the railroad track going as a believer. And the trial comes, and maybe the trial wasn't handled right. The trial turns into a temptation, and you jump track. And you're still a believer, but you're off. You're down the road a year, two year, five year, 15 year, and your view of God is messed up. You say, do you meet people like that all the time? Questioning his goodness. Questioning his love. Questioning if he really loved me. Would he really let this happen? Like weeks ago when I told you about my friend going back to throw a pass and he rose up and he got struck by the outside linebacker right up under his arm and it led to seven surgeries. And man, you caught up with him at that point. He was a believer. He's mad at God. God, listen, you know what? I had a promising career. In essence, hey, God, why'd you ruin my career? Hey, God, if you're so sovereign, then why didn't you make that linebacker just hit me a little lower, a little higher? Or why couldn't my tackle take care? God, listen, I had a good, hey, God, you got in my way. And I know there's a lot of people who, God, why'd you send this? Why'd you allow this? And you're back to the trial, and all of a sudden, you've jumped track. And these are people who live without joy. And they live questioning the character of God. And listen, I'm just telling you, straight, he's good. Not because I say he's good, but because his word says that he's good. James says, listen, the source is not God. It's you. The only thing left in God, you can't ever limit him, but his stable character is such, listen, he'd never throw you a curveball. And and for the sake of a word, he'd never throw you a joker. And, and, you know, maybe as I say in the deck, and maybe as I say that, you say, but Scott, you don't know my life, and I might say to you, then you don't, you don't know God here. Because God loves you, and he's causing all things to work together for your, what? Good. And I just think it's easy for us, it's easy for me to look back and think, hey, this could have gone a different way. Has it ever occurred that all that God has brought into your life by trial, he has done so to perfect you into the image of Christ? You may even come in this morning, you may have some kind of physical defect in some way. You might even have some sickness that you haven't told anybody about. You've got something that you can't do like somebody else. Listen, has it ever occurred that God's going to allow those things in your life and my life so that he can perfect you into the image of Christ? But James is really trying to reason with us because some of these people just had a wrong view of his character. So I'm back to the quote. I never got to it. He said this, quote, to question. I think this is true. Do you? He said to question the goodness of God is to imply that man is more concerned about goodness than is God. To suggest that man is kinder than God is to subvert the very nature of God. He said it is to deny God. And this is precisely the thrust of temptation to question the goodness of God. So James just says, oh, listen, don't, and I'm pleading with you, 
Don't be deceived. He's good. All that he does is good. Now listen, the devil and your flesh will tell you otherwise. They will whisper lies in your ear and seek to dethrone God's goodness to you. In other words, they will tell you the wrong thing and the fleshly thing, but I'm here to say that God would never incite you to evil. Remember what Jesus said? He were to say, and he said this in the gospel, which of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him. So James here, do you see? He's correcting any wrong view about God to those who are doubting his goodness. And to those who have possibly become so disillusioned to the point of losing all hope in trials. And you say, if you've lost hope, listen, I just I want to just appeal to you. God's good. God loves you. His character is good. All he is is good. And listen. Difficulties come your way. Trials come your way. Death has entered into your family. He is still good. And the only thing here that comes from God above is that which is good and perfect. And God could never do anything but be kind to you and love you and help you in the midst of your trial. Listen, there's the first affirmation. His stable character. And then his second affirmation And maybe you've not been able to read this in light of this. Here's the second affirmation. We'll call it his sovereign creation, okay? So his stable character and then his sovereign creation. Have you ever caught this before? (laughs) This is is brilliant. But I I don't mean that like as a piece of literature or as an author who's number one on the bestseller, who cares? This is the word of God. So when I say this is brilliant, it is the word of God. But look at it in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, take that phrase. You might even ask, what does this, what does verse 18 have to do with the context. Is is he still on the same subject? Listen, I said it earlier. He's never left the subject. He won't leave the subject. He won't leave the subject next week, okay? He's still on the same subject. You say, how does he tie it together? Well, look at it again in verse 18. Of his own will, speaking of God's sovereignty, you can read that, of his own will. And then this little phrase, he brought us forth. Now, you say, well, well, he's on a new subject. No, he, he's not on a new subject. He's talking about something that God's character does. In his sovereignty, he brings you forth and he repeats the metaphor of giving birth. You say, well, what metaphor? Well, look back at verse 15. You remember it there. Desire, when it has what? conceived, gives birth to sin, 
And sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. So he's still on the metaphor of conception. But here in 15, when, when sin conceives and your will's engaged, you give birth to something. And what you give birth to in 15 is sin. And then sin begins an ugly deformity and it begins to grow up and it takes a life all of its own. It promises you everything. It delivers nothing. It gives back far less than what it promises and it brings forth death. Now in contrast to that, do you see it now? In God's character, okay, of His own will, the text says there that he brought us forth, okay? Now, the idea is he gave birth. And the contrast is this, is that sin and lust bring forth death, but the new birth brings forth light and life. Now, that little phrase there, it's a, you know, I don't know if we'd use that so much in our own day, brought us Fourth, but the word means to beget. It means to to produce is the word. It is what we call in systematic theology the doctrine of regeneration. You say, well, pastor, that's kind of a big word. Well, no, you can get it. it this is the word. It, it, he brought us forth. This is what it means to be born again. Fair? It's the same word. Okay, he he brought us forth and it's the ideal of causing someone to have new life and to be born again. You say, well, what is regeneration? I'll just give you this framework. Regeneration is the act of God. It's not hard to understand by which new life is implanted into the soul of man. In other words, when he caused you to be born again. When you came to Christ, now you might not have been able to articulate it like that. I couldn't at 14. All I knew is I went from one moment being dead in my trespasses and sins and then suddenly just quickened, dropped to my knees, saw my sin, saw the Savior, and God Almighty breathed life into me. He caused me to be born again. He brought me forth. Now listen, He brought you forth, okay? But it is this. It is an act of God. It is not you acting. You say, well, why do you say that? Because that's what the Bible says in verse 18. Of His own what? Will. That is not your choice. Of His own will, He brought you forth and He gave new life and implanted it into the soul of man. It is a miracle of God. It is to be, as I mentioned, to be born again. It is the new birth. It is unseen, is it not? To the human eye. All I, I didn't quite know what happened when I was 14. All I know is I knew I was different though. But I, but I couldn't see that He just took my heart of stone and He just changed it. That whatever I used to hate, now I used to love. And the things I used to love, I now begin to hate. That's unseen to the human eye. Jeremiah in the Old Testament called this a new heart in Jeremiah 31. Jesus says in John 3 that it's to be born from above. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 5 a new creation. Very well. James calls it here to be brought forth. Now back up just one second. Look in verse 18. 
of his own will. That's the ESV. The NASB, this isn't, you don't have to know all this, but I just think words are interesting. It's translated in the exercise of his will. Okay? Another translation, the Net Bible, says, by his sovereign plan, he brought us forth. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, in the fulfillment of his own purpose, he brought us forth. And so here, the thought is, this is God's initiative, God's design. Now listen, you'd reason with me, it absolutely had to be. You were by nature and by choice dead in your trespasses and what? Sin. Our salvation here and in other places is a work of almighty God on a dead soul. He breathed spiritual life into you. In fact, let me just show you some of the scriptures. Go back to Ephesians just for a moment, and then I'll tie this back. But this is so important. In Ephesians, this is not just there in James 1.18. You know this. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 4, where it says there that he, in 1.4, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then it says, in love, he predestined us for, what? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of, what does it say? His will. This is a special creation. Okay? Okay. Look over at Ephesians. You know it in 2.1, right? Just the next chapter. You were dead, that classic statement. In your trespasses and sins in 2.1, 2.2, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. And now drop down to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, watch this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, what? Alive. He breathed spiritual life into you. And it says in 2.5 that he made us alive together with Christ by, what does it say? Grace you have been saved. Of course it's grace, is it not? It wasn't you. Because of his own will, he brought you forth. And here, he predestined us to adoptions to Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He made us alive together with Christ. The emphasis is on him. Look over at First Peter just for a second. Look over there, just one book after James. In First Peter 1, 3, it says there, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Here it is. In 1 3, he has caused us to be what? Born again to a living hope. He's caused us to be born again of his own will. I'm thinking the classic text in John 1, 12, as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And we, we quote that, and rightfully we should. As many as received him. 
So you got you say, Pastor, you've got to receive them. I know that you do have to receive them. And he gives you the grace to receive them. But the next verse says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? But of God. Listen, let me, let me make you an analogy. Just, and I'm laughing, smiling, as no human child is brought forth by his or her own power, its conception, gestation, and birth are out of its control, so too our spiritual life, God creates new life in the believer. He changes us. Watch this. Not by your power, not by your decision, not by any goodness in you, but solely God's initiative, a total act of His grace rooted in God's goodness, He brought you forth to life. Now, come back with me. You say, what's the point, Scott? Listen, here's the point. God doesn't ever under any, any circumstance, ever lead people into sin. Rather, he is the very one who began spiritual life in you. He saved you. He redeemed you. He brought you forth. He gave you life. And far from God tempting you to evil, he is the very cause of the new birth. That's the meaning of the text. You say, well, how did he do that? Uh, I'm glad you asked. Look back at 118. It will tell you how he did it. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the, what does it say? The word of truth. In other words, the means of the new birth is the word of truth. Or to say it another way, the word of God is the instrument by which God saves dead sinners. And the word of truth here stands in utter contrast to the deception of lust and the sin it produces. We are born again by the power of the word of God, which is here called the word of truth. Look just a few pages to the right at 1 Peter. Doesn't Peter speak of this? In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, here's the key, through the living and abiding, what? Word of God. The living and abiding Word of God. You're saved by His truth. And so the Word of truth is a, Expression, certainly that would speak of the whole counsel of God, but in a restricted sense to the very gospel itself, the word of truth is the instrument that brings forth new life. And this is why, this is why. Do you you see, let me just make a little point here. Do you see why it would be ridiculous to entertain children in church? Do you understand why we, as a leadership team, would want to uphold this book at every outlet point? Do you understand when we start small groups tonight at junior high and start small groups at high school 
It's going to be about the word of God. You say, well, not only is the word the means by which we're transformed, but listen, the word of God is also the means by which God redeems people. So the amazing thing is that he's going to use you to pass the seed along and to scatter the seed. But his word is what causes people to come to a living relationship. I'm thinking of Paul in Romans. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the what? The word of Christ. And if that weren't enough, look at the last phrase in 118. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. What do you mean the first fruits? I think it's just an expression. Remember, James was the first book written in the New Testament. And I think he's referring back, obviously, to the Old Testament Levitical system. The Jews would set aside the first portion of the harvest. That first portion would belong to the Lord and then more would, would come. And so they would set this aside to the Lord. But, but also that, that concept of the first fruits was used in Jeremiah 2, 3, where it said that Israel was holy to the Lord. And, and they were the first fruits of the harvest. So it was used metaphorically to speak of Israel that was set aside. And so I think here what James is saying is, listen, the Lord brought you forth. And these believers were the first fruits of a great harvest that would come. And that first fruits, I think, represents the gospel in so many other places in the New Testament that we are at the first stage of an ultimate renovation that is taking place in our life, moving from justification to sanctification all the way to glorification, that God is in the process of bringing forth a harvest of converts through the new birth that would be holy and set aside for the Lord. And so I think James is just kind of one more nail here in his argument that far from tempting anybody to sin, he caused the new birth to take place. And that gospel that's going out by the word of truth is going to reap a harvest that is going to one day produce ultimate glorification in the life of his people. So here's his argument. It's the character of God his stable character, and his sovereign creation, would it be that you would know it this morning? Amen.